This is Legal Luminaries. Join us as we delve into the inspiring stories of some of the greatest legal minds to have shaped South Africa's democracy and law. I'm Iman Repetti, your guide through the series. Hello and welcome. This is Legal Luminaries. Join us as we delve into the inspiring stories of some of the greatest legal minds to have shaped South Africa's democracy and law. I'm Imandra Petty. I am your guide through the series. And today we sit down with retired Justice Zach Yacoub. Justice Yacoub completed a law degree at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And it was during those years as a student that he became a member of the underground of the African National Congress. We'll hear a lot more detail about that journey and how it in a way animated or really catalyzed a lot of his other forays into activism. Justice Yacoub has been blind from infancy and has lobbied extensively for the rights of the blind and the visually impaired for equitable access to books. And I think I'd like to pick the story up there before we launch into the contribution he has made to the bench. Justice Yacoub, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. And, you know, I I was uh, reading and, and listening to different interviews that you've done just about the most fundamental thing, you know, when I was growing up, reading was just so, so easy and so accessible to me. And I was read to by my parents. I read to my children. And when you described, you know, just the obstacles to entry of being able to read, especially in those days where the material, you know, either came from the US or from the UK, they had particular, you know, schools of thinking, which might have been even alien to us here in South Africa at that time. I'd love for you to pick up what that was like as a young person, as a child, even trying to have access to books that would have been easily or more easily accessible to other people. Thank you very much. But I didn't think it was a problem at all. I kept reading everything that there was to read. And the teachers read lots of things to us. And when I went on holiday, my friends who were children and even adults at uh, during holidays at home and so on read to us. So it looks like a problem now. But at that time, for me, it was it was quite a normal thing. I didn't sit there and think now what a terrible thing it is. If you talk about it now, of course, you see the thing. But I was just growing up as a kid and doing what I could do and doing the best I could. So it, it wasn't difficult, but it was it was a very exciting time. I grew up like that. And since I'm talking like that, it was uh, it was a school of 22 blind kids. There was no experience of the rest of society. I went home and there too, I was part of a very conservative community in Verulam. So I grew up with a metric, but with, with limited experience, because you learn what the teachers teach you. And I'm ashamed to say that by the time I was in metric, I actually thought that uh, African people in this country, Black African people, were really the pits, because the only... African people I met were gardeners. I didn't have the brains to understand that they didn't have enough water or soap to wash themselves. That's the reason why they smelled the way they did. I'm ashamed to say I didn't feel sorry for them at the time. It was quite a quite a complicated time. And I thought that the whites were the best because the only whites we had contact with were the white school inspectors and so on. And I thought that we, the Indians, if we could do as well as the whites, we'd be there. We would arrive. That is the status on which I went to the university. And ironically, it was that university, by its own policies, which began to teach me I was wrong. It's quite, 
apart from the underground and so on. Because the first lecture I had was a political science lecture, and I had never heard the white guy, Afrikaner guy, and uh, he shall remain nameless. What they used to do in the apartheid days is that uh, these idiotic white people who couldn't make it in white universities were sent off to the Indian universities to earn their money there. And I had this stupid guy, and I listened to him. He couldn't even speak English properly, kept on making grammatical errors. And I think to myself, ah, a stupid white person. Now that was an absolute revelation. And then we go to the medical school, we meet people like Steve Biko and African people and African people who are doctors and so on. And they are much cleverer than I am. And that meant that I was cured of my racism instantly. But interestingly, the beginning of the, the realization that white people are human beings like us was the stupid white lecturer at UDW then. So I stopped there. That's quite an interesting, you know, journey you've taken us on. And, and perhaps later then we'll come back to your experience in those years of access to law books um, or having to copy things uh, and, you know, talking about copyright law and some of the limitations, particularly during that time to being able to copy and disseminate material that would be useful not only to yourself, but other people who might have been blind or visually impaired. But, you know, it's so interesting just listening to you recount your impression of Black people quite in the way that you did. It's so jarring, Zach, because, you know, we've arrived at a point where our languaging has changed, where our perceptions, even though they are obviously in in darker corners in the country and, you know, where people feel in their own inverted commas, safe spaces to, to be racist, for you to say that so openly about, you know, what you experienced and then to talk about the journey of transformation it sounds like what you're saying is that for even the worst racists among us, we're an education away from changing our minds. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And that is where one gets one's faith, one's faith in human nature from. Anybody can change. And I must say to the young people of today, or however old you are, if you still feel somewhat racist and somewhat sexist, it's not too late. Admit it to yourself to start with and make the effort to change. And you will change. So all of these things are happening. And there's kind of, you know, as we look back on your story, this, I don't want to say parallel existence, because it all is one for the person who is experiencing them. You're completing your your law degree. Uh, You become connected with a group of activists uh, on campus. You start to hear the teachings of people like Biko, and you make this decision to join the ANC, to become part of the underground while you are in your studies. uh, And that obviously influences, as we've seen in your career, other choices vis-a-vis your career that you make. Take us back to to those moments of capacitating yourself with the law and developing a conscience and then, you know, choosing what your career might be like. That was really thrust upon me in a way because people who could see thought that blind people had no brains. So I went, for example, to 35 attorneys looking for articles in 1973 after I had qualified. 
and everybody said what a wonderful guy I was, how wonderful it was that I got my degrees despite the fact that I couldn't see and so on. It was so absolutely wonderful and so on and so on. But after a half an hour boring lecture of that sort, sometimes one hour, they finally say they are so sorry they have no space. So nobody has space for me. So I wanted to be an attorney to start with, and I couldn't be an attorney. I said, well, all right, now let's see. I'll become an advocate. Nobody has to pay me to train to be an advocate. I'll work it out. I'll make an application. And that's how it was. I then went and applied to become an advocate. I had three pupil masters. So that was, again, because of my blindness. I wanted to be an attorney, but I was forced to be an advocate hoping that attorneys will give me work. Problem was that attorneys didn't give me work. So there were pro deos, which I did, which was murder trials at the expense of the state. And then my success really was a result of the fact that I began to do a lot of free work for poor people. And I began to do free work on the basis that I would get paid if, uh, if we got paid by the other side later. And I did a lot of work of that sort and I realized that every time I did some free work, I appeared in court. And every time I appeared in court, I was a bit of a show off. So when I appeared in court, I made a show of it and uh, did it in some style and some class. And these attorneys like that. So because of the free work, I had exposure. Then I got more and more paid work. The other free work I did was as part of the underground of the African National Congress, because we use the law as a weapon to challenge every oppressive act which they committed. And I appeared in lots of cases, free for the African National Congress, with everybody, all the judges would be completely against you in a very difficult time to argue cases for the African National Congress in these matters. We won some of those cases. So in a sense, I didn't make a choice to choose my career. My career was foisted upon me, and I did what I had to do to make things work, and they work. That's how it was. So it was not like sitting down and making a serious decision about this is where I could go, but it slowly grew upon me. And by the time I had been in practice for three or four years, I knew where I was. I knew who I was. I knew where I was going. And then I began deliberately then to go in that direction. But that was only when I was about 28 years old in 1976, after I'd been practiced as an advocate for three years. This is interesting. And there are echoes, uh, Zach, between this experience of yours and, and those of our other legal luminaries that we've interviewed for the series about being tenacious, not giving up, and in a way having your path revealed to you rather than you being, uh, you know, an active decision maker in that path per se. And I think that that's really encouraging for those who are aspirants in our society right now, where they are still, even in a context of democracy, greater awareness of gender parity, myriad obstacles to, to getting ahead and eventually getting a career. What would you say to those, you know, who, who are struggling at the moment with pursuing a career and a purpose in law? I would say firstly to all of society that all of you have got to change. We have got to make sure that we develop an overall more democratic and more sensitive society. 
And I'm, I'm very sad to say that people like me and like you are a minority in society. We're a minority because most people of all races believe things differently. They're racist, they're sexist, many of them. They have all sorts of troubles. They have troubles against blind people, against women and so on. And we need to, to start a social revolution, which is very, very important to change the rest of society while we are in the process of doing things for ourselves. You see, the constitution really didn't bring true democracy. It created, by creating human rights and so on, the opportunity to create a new democracy. When the constitution says we are non-racial, we are not. That is the vision of the constitution. Non-sexism is the vision of the constitution. And we must accept that our constitution places upon all of us, young and old, the obligation to achieve things for other people, to achieve a fair democratic society. And I pushed hard in the end to achieve a democratic society. And my benefits came because I coincidentally got into that sphere to start with. But in the end, once I deliberately continued to do it, the more I fought for democracy, the more sacrifices I made, the more I did things for other people, the better my life got and the more people did for me. That's so interesting. And, and again, some might say, why and lament? Why do we still have to be fighting? Why are we still, you know, have to be in the pursuit of, you know, equitable treatment and access to either materials, resources and opportunities? But it seems as if, you know, that's very much a part of the human experience. And speaking of that, Zach, when we talk about the external fighting that we have to do to create a society that is corrected, that is aware and conscious, we're also fighting our internal selves. And, you know, you mentioned the word sexism and we had uh, quite an interesting pre sort of set up discussion before we we started recording the session. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners that fight in yourself. You talked about the earlier fight, fighting your racist self, which you realized was racist when you got to university or just after your matric. Um, but sexism was also a, a part of your experience. Sexism was a much harder fight. Yeah. I, I loved women. I loved hugging them and kissing them and dancing with them and smooching on the dance floor and all sorts of things as a young man. It was wonderful. I enjoyed those things immensely. And I smiled even when I think about them now. I wonder who but, you're thinking of right now. <laughs> I'm thinking of my wife, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> So, the, the, but the point is that I, I, I slowly began to change. I slowly began to change because one of the things that changed me was the birth of my daughter in 1973. I, I, I began to think about two things. The first thing was, what if men treat my daughter like I treat other women. I was 25 years old then, and that is when that conversion truly started. It took 10 years. I was 35 before, I think, I achieved the final result. And then I was also anti-gay and lesbian completely. 
I thought that uh, uh, gay people lived in sin. And I thought that these people should suddenly change. They should moralize themselves properly and absolutely. I I had strong views about those things. And then I thought to myself, when my daughter was born, and I read an article somewhere which says they don't choose. And I said to myself, what if it turns out to be good? What the hell am I going to do then? And it was that thought which was the trigger for my change in 1973 as far as the gay and lesbian arena was concerned. So that too was an important part of the conversion. And you see, the blindness made me realize that all the minorities, the blind people, the the people of other races, minority races, majority races, oppressed groups of all kinds, and all disabilities, not only blindness, had to overcome the same kind of problem. And my idea was that I couldn't work only with with blindness because that was too selfish. It was necessary for us to link the struggles for disability with the struggles for non-racialism and non-sexism because in a sense, they are all concerned with the oppression of minorities, the oppression of people who are different. So it is the same struggle And my own idea, and I never got too far with it, was to unite those struggles. The struggles of people with disability, the struggles by women, the struggle with African people and so on. It's very interesting because I knew a blind guy who refused to be driven by a deaf driver. He said he felt uncomfortable. And we had to give him some, uh, it took an hour's discussion and facilitation for him to accept that idea. So a person with one disability discriminates against a person with another disability. A person in, who comes from one kind of race group, whatever that race group is, essentially begins to be racist against others. And I'm not, I'm not singling out particular groups. I made a statement which said that 90% of the Indian people I know are racist. And Malewa grabbed onto that as a wonderful statement. The trouble is that 90% of the Indian people I know are racist and 95% of everybody I know are racist, African people and all. The non-racist people I know, truly non-racist people, are very, very few and far between. And non-sexist people too. And the people who are caring about people with disability as well. So it's a, it is a long struggle. I think we've come some way, but yeah, that, that's about it there. Well, here's the difficulty about having, you know, these complex discussions is that any one of these themes could be an hour long or hours long conversation on their own, particularly around uh, race, prejudice, transformation. Um, It's my responsibility to keep us focused on this thing, which will intersect with those anyway, because these are intersectional conversations. But I wanted to quickly ask, Zach, you know, aside from those catalytic events in your life, the birth of your daughter, which triggered this thinking about your own prejudices and allowed you to interrogate. Not everyone might have that particular catalytic uh, event, but how do we get people, especially in a society like South Africa with its history and its complexities to begin to self-interrogate around their prejudices, around beliefs that they've had, which are self-limiting beliefs, you know, both for themselves, their communities, and ultimately for society. I have always believed that you've got to start small. I talk to everybody I meet, and I reckon that if one person 
talks to 10 people in their lifetime. Minimum. Talks to 20 people and converts 10. Properly converts 10. And those 10 people talk to another 10. And those people talk to another 10. And those people talk to another 10. Soon, we will have a huge movement. So all we need to do, all of us, is continue to propagate our ideas of non-racism, non-sexism, and everything else to everybody we meet at our dinner table, at where you get a bit unpopular doing that, but at dinner tables, at weddings, at funerals, at parties, at all sorts of things. You spoil it for them a little, but somehow slowly they get by and they get accustomed to it. And I'm happy to say that all my friends are non-racist, non-sexist, and everything else, which is wonderful. And they do the work of converting others. So I see it as, as a slow, long process. And I think that if we can start the slow process of the social revolution now, and we can say in 20 years' time that we have improved by 10%, it will be wonderful. Remember that we are not confined to racism ourselves. Indian society is hugely racist in India. The North Indians think that they are a hundred cuts above the South Indian people who talk Tamil and so on and so on. We know about America, but the Indians are huge racists at that level. The North Indians in particular are horrendous. We know what the Zulu people and the Kosa people, generally speaking, in this country think of each other. We know about the US. We know about how, how racist England is. I still don't know a country where there is no real racism. It is a world phenomenon. It, we all try to hide it as much as we can, but it is everywhere in the world. So we need a world change, not only a change in this country. Again, one of those conversations that, you know, yeah. are, are so important, so needed. And uh, I'm surprised you still got invitations to things. <laughs> Given as you are the guy who is bound to have an uncomfortable conversation uh, with someone who happened to sit next to you. But let's come then, Zach, if we can, to, um, you know. But, uh, I must say that a drop of wine helps a great deal in that process. <laughs> I have no doubt. Uh, in vino veritas, <laughs> they say, uh, you know, in wine, the truth. So it's the best setup for an honest conversation. Yeah. Um, so there were many, there were many sort of, you know, twists and turns. You were an advocate between 73 and 1991. And you, you know, you had your legal practice there. You did a lot of, you had a lot of engagement with the, with the community. You were defending political prisoners, as you just shared with us a little bit earlier on. You took your sulk in 91, and then you practiced as a senior counsel until you were appointed as a justice of the Constitutional Court in 1998. And that proceeded up until 2013. And as a journalist, I encountered you on the bench of the Constitutional Court as well. There's a major contribution that you, at least your peers have also agreed, you've made to socioeconomic rights jurisprudence in South Africa. And I'd love for you to share what stands out in your mind as your biggest contributions to South African or other law. I don't know. I mean, everyone says it's socioeconomic rights, but... I think that that's probably right. But I must say that the Constitutional Court was a collegial consultative process. Normally, any chief justice in any other part of the world, and uh, I apologize to them where necessary, 
if they got on their slate a big case like this kind of such great importance, they would keep it for themselves to write or they would give it to the Deputy Chief Justice to write. Our Chief Justice at the time, Arthur Chaskelson, came to me, the second most junior members of his bench, to write this judgment. And I don't know why he did it, but he did. And the way we write these judgments is that we have a conference discussion. The first draft is produced by the person who's drafting it. The drafts are circulated amongst all the judges. The judges make comments. You take their comments very seriously. You produce a second draft and a third draft. And I had produced three or four drafts as a result of listening to comments of, of, of my colleagues and so on. So this Khrutbrom judgment, although I did the first draft, be interesting to go back to see what the first draft looked like and how they changed after all the other judges made, made comments. But in many, many cases, the name of the judge at the time when I was a judge in the Constitutional Court was just the name of the judge who was there. It was a collegial process. We listened to everybody. So I must say that although I started the idea, Krutbun was a combination of everybody else. And each of those ideas that I put up in that judgment are ideas which all 11 of us actually shared. It was necessary. There were some interesting things, I suppose. But in the end, the Constitution did provide for social and economic rights. The Constitution did say that the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures to bring these about. And it was necessary for us to bring me, give meaning to it. So we, we, we gave meaning to that clause in as best a way as we could. And, and, and it sounds, as you describe, quite a, you know, quite a collaborative process. And for those who are listening, this is a 23-year decision now, um, uh, obliging the state to devise and implement a coherent, coordinated housing program. It was around the issue of housing predicated by the, um, the Hruitt yeah. case. Yeah. yeah. We had to decide what a reasonable housing program was. Yeah. And we said, well, a reasonable housing program has to be coordinated between the various spheres of government, otherwise it can't be coordinated. It has to involve all spheres of government, otherwise one sphere of government can't do it. It has to be coherent because an incoherent program can't be reasonable. And it has to look after vulnerable people. And we put all those things together. And it may have been that the ideas came from all sorts of places. And I suppose I could claim the credit of putting the ideas together in the way in which I did. So speaking of, and, and, you know, you use this as a case in point, um, you know, to talk about someone like a chief justice who, you know, typically might keep and, and hug, you know, the, the big cases for themselves yeah. in the way that it happened in your experience that, you know, that was opposite. And it, it was quite interesting. And I think it's interesting for a lot of people who might be listening and have aspirations in this regard to see that, you know, when you do open the door to collaboration, you can end up with a, you know, more enriched outcome at the end. 
And it leads me to the question around some of the the worst things you, you've seen happen in court. Here you had an experience, which I imagine was, you know, was was a growth <clears throat> experience. It was a an affirming experience. But, uh, you know, lawyers and attorneys or legal practitioners might not always uh, behave in these types of ways. And maybe just to go back to your box of anecdotes around some of the worst things you've seen happen in court. I believe that lawyers must have a certain degree of responsibility. They need to ensure that they choose their arguments very carefully. We all get stupid as lawyers from time to time, and it's the judge's duty to to develop lawyers. And uh, and many people uh, many people talk about the cases in which they succeeded. I prefer to talk about the cases where where judges taught me things. So I used to work during December and January while everybody else was on holiday so that I could pick up all the urgent cases while the rich lawyers were enjoying themselves in beaches and all sorts of places. And especially when my children were not at school anymore, I could go on holiday in February, no problem, when all the moneymakers were back. But one of the jobs we used to do quite often there is custody cases and access cases. And I was for a man... This was one of the silliest things I ever did. I was a, I was acting for a man who had custody of his seven or eight-year-old kid, and they were in Johann- the mother was in Johannesburg. The kid was in Johannesburg with the kid, and the mother reasonably and sensibly writes to the man and says, "Look, we have a family function on the first Saturday after school opens." I promised the kid will be back on Sunday. There's a family wedding. I'd like to decide to go to the family wedding. And the man came to me and said, we must do something about this. I was a young lawyer. I was 25 or 26. And I said, yes, but how can she do that? This is depriving a child of school. It's a terrible thing. I go into court to make an urgent application on his behalf, saying that, um, well, the child will suffer irreparable harm if the child misses out one week in school. And I really believed in this. And the judge was a guy called Ditkert who had the reputation of being a very heavy judge to everybody, but I liked him. He said to me, Mr. Jacob, let me just ask you one question. Were you ever at school? So I look at him and I say, yeah, yes, I, I was. He says, now, if you had missed the first week of school in your second year of school, do you think it would be a good thing or a bad thing for you? I thought about it and I said, my Lord, I cannot take my case any further. I would draw. And that was it. I couldn't argue that case anymore. So you've got to know when to pull out of a case. You learn and when you're young, you do awkward things. You do wrong things. So when I was a judge, I was not difficult towards junior people who appeared before us, but I was very uh, exacting when experienced advocates appeared. What strikes me as as we're speaking, and of course, you know, we 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 know you in in South Africa. We've, uh, you know, for colourful language uh, in some places, as it's been written, you know, for 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 being a larger than life practitioner of the law and so on. But what strikes me in our interview now is the admissions uh, that you make um, of yourself so freely, these self-realizations that you have made about being teachable, about going in one direction, gung-ho, with full belief, 
um, being presented with an alternative possibility set of facts and being swayed yeah. by that and then changing your mind. Sometimes they're in big ways and sometimes they're in small ways. Um, yeah. And you know, some might say that's really that's a really remarkable sign of you know somebody who's willing to learn and, and and somebody who's mature and who is willing to let go of their ego. And ego, some would say, is is what you actually need to get through this world of of lawyering in inverted commas. How would you advise people in in this space when when it comes to that about the ability to change your own mind? I would say choose your choose your terrain well. And when you realize that you made a mistake and gone to the wrong place at the wrong time, go away. It, you can use a straightforward war analogy or a chess analogy or something. And, and you know when you've reached the stage where you're going to be beaten in half a second. Forget about it and go away. But there are some issues which are issues of principle. So remember that there were many other cases so that when I don't, the, the judges knew of me that I wouldn't fight back unnecessarily. But when I did, and they opposed me, and I stood up to them, they listened. Because I had the reputation of pulling back when I thought I was wrong, and therefore, in the, you see, 99% of cases decide themselves. You know what the result is going to be before you start, ultimately. Either you win or you lose. Real skill is required only in 1% of them. And in that 1%, you have, it'll be a difficult case where either side may be right, and you have got to get the judges to listen to you. You've got to get into the judge's mind and heart in some ways. And I have won many a difficult case, many an argument against apartheid laws because I have fought against judges as well. So you've got to do both things. I mean, I remember once a, a bullying judge said to me, Mr. Jacob, I refuse to hear you. I paused a little and I said, um, but your lordship will have to hear me. He thought about it a little and he realized that what I was saying was that he was being paid to hear me. They better do it. He did listen and I won the case. So there are, are both sides of the coin. Is there... I mean, and, and, you know, I can't ask you <laughs> for fear of, uh, I suppose, you are being worried about being litigated against. But are there regrets you have? And, and maybe it's an early question to ask in our conversation, because we, I want you to reflect on the long arc of your career towards the end. But at this yeah. juncture, you know, just in terms of other lessons that you've learned, besides the ability to, to change your mind, being in court throughout your career in those early years, in those formative years of you deciding what you would be like as a lawyer or an advocate? Do you, I don't know, do you have any regrets about your conduct? No, I, I, I don't. I, I really don't. I have regrets in the sense that if I think about it, maybe there are some cases I would have done differently and so on, but there are small things only. Overall, yeah. I'm very, very happy. I, I was essentially a show-off, basically. And I think that lawyers, in a sense, have to have to be show-offs to a degree. 
And you can be a shop in two ways. You you can be a quiet shop, which I quite often used to be when the occasion demanded it, where you are gentle and careful. But the one thing that I must tell people is that being rude and shouting at the opposition and shouting at witnesses and taking advantage of weak, vulnerable witnesses doesn't help you at all. In fact, many people said of my cross-examination that when I'm cross-examining somebody and my voice becomes very soft, they know that there is trouble coming. Because when I asked witnesses difficult questions, they were not asked in a loud voice or anything. I asked it very gently and very carefully and very courteously so that it was the intellect, it was the question which does the job. For example, I had once a collision where a car struck a motorcycle almost at an intersection. And I realized that there was a problem because he didn't see the motorcycle early enough. And the question I asked was a very gentle question. When did you first see the motorcycle? And because that was the weakness in his case, He went all over the place in relation to when he first saw the motorcycle. So I didn't have to shout at him and ask him. I asked him very gently, tell me, there's one thing I don't really understand. But when did you first see the motorcycle? And if you sound a little hesitant when you ask the question, the witness thinks that he's got the better of you. So he bumbles along a bit more loudly, which is also very nice. Uh, really interesting around the approach because there are a number of approaches that you can take uh, and, and sometimes being quiet slows everything down and creates more impact. Zach, we, we're at a time in, in South Africa, and I don't need to share the stats with you, they are horrible. Domestic yeah. violence cases, we, you know, we talk about the backlogs in our forensic labs, we talk about the backlogs in court, we talk about shoddy investigations, um, which limits the amount of positive prosecutions with jail time that you can get. As you look at the space uh, and access to justice for people, what are some of the observations that you are making? And, and what would you say to people specifically who feel like, you know, going to court is pointless? I I find it very difficult, very difficult to say to people there is point in going to court. Uh, if you manage your case properly, then there is point. Uh, but otherwise, I can understand that there is a problem. But the problems are broader because corruption is the biggest part of our problem in South Africa. That deprives everybody of money, that deprives people of training, that creates a particular attitude. And I think that once you take that away, and once you develop a moral fiber in the members of our society, which is, again, a long-term social job, until and unless we do that, I'm afraid to say that we're not going to get anywhere. Things have gone very badly. We have extremely weak leadership. We have extremely contradictory leadership. And I would think that the existence of democratic leadership and strong leadership and powerful leadership is going to take a very, very long time. And I'm afraid that at the age of 75, I don't have the energy to restart that process any longer.
I actually get tired now. I can't go house to house and talk to people for five hours in a row or anything of the sort. I have to have a little nap after this interview, for example. So it is for younger people to do it. We've got to develop a new democracy. We've got to develop new young leadership. And it is the young people of our society who have got to have the moral fiber to get into society. I don't agree with everything about the African National Congress Youth League, of course. But the statement that they made would say that it is not a, not a place for pensioners parliament and government is probably right. Maybe everyone's too old. We need young blood. We need young, appropriate blood. The problem is that the corruption is so rampant that many young people are also corrupt. So you've got to be very careful about that. It doesn't mean that young people are good. But you've got to find young, clean, aspirant, vibrant people who, and there are many people who, who are in our country between the ages of 20 and 40 who can make a wonderful contribution to our country. And I appeal to them to put their shoulders to the wheel and work at it. They won't go wrong. It's so interesting you brought up the ANC Youth League because I was actually going to ask you that question uh, and you preempted it. And you might have been listening to my interview with uh, Fasia Hassan, who's been elected onto the ANC Youth League NEC. And they uh, and she was part of that task team talking about this very thing, about uh, you know the dearth of young people in positions of either power or policymaking or not having a seat at the table. We kind of have just gently meandered into this arena of of politics then, Zach, and and you know this, you know, during your tenure as well. But it is fraught how the <clears throat> judiciary has been painted, some might say tainted as well, by claims uh, made about the, the role of the judiciary, the conduct of the judiciary. You know, just in the last week or so alone, we've had some pushback from Parliament, for example, against Chief Justice uh, Raymond Zondo for what he was saying with regard to state capture and, you know, that Parliament would let all of this happen all over again. And, you know, them Parliament, the National Assembly, having found or deciding that he's spoken out of turn, that that wasn't the right forum. How do you navigate really important moments in the South African political landscape when you are in positions, uh, when you are in high position and high office in the judiciary? Sometimes, some people, and that may include the judiciary sometimes, this time it's parliament, are so wrong. It is so obvious that there is no point in taking the matter any further. It's like uh, the accusations against the chief justice are almost like saying, that I know I committed them, I killed 25 people, but the fact that the Chief Justice found me guilty of killing 25 people and saying I was guilty and saying I I must go to jail is wrong. So it is as as wrong as that. So there are certain things which are so wrong on the part of government this time, but sometimes on the part of judges too, which as far as I'm concerned, are not worth debating. The Chief Justice had to do what he did. Parliament came out in that way, which they didn't have to. But again, that is part of their defensiveness and the corruption which they're trying to defend and the fact that they didn't do enough about the state capture things at all because they don't have the will to do it. So what do you do if you've been caught with your pants down 
That's all that's happened to them. Uh, uh, they, they have to attack others. And I'm afraid that that is all that has happened here. Now, as far as the judiciary is concerned, it's a difficult job. I think that our judges need also to be stronger and to be more circumspect and to take their responsibility of training lawyers a little bit more seriously. Judges need to be a little stronger than they are, particularly in relation to strong lawyers. And I think that lawyers have to be a little more responsible because in the end, for me, the touchstone is the Constitution. So when I was a judge, I was there to fulfill the Constitution. That was my touchstone. From before the Constitution, the Freedom Charter was my touchstone. The Constitution was my touchstone. I withdrew from politics completely, and I became a slave to the Constitution. And I think that that is what each and every one of us needs to do. Whether as a judge, as a lawyer, as a politician. And then the important thing is that there are always differences of opinion in relation to what is right and what is wrong. The whole world will never agree together on what is correct and what is not correct. And therefore, every judgment involving morality, involving ethics, made by anyone at any time, is going to involve a debate. Our constitution, constitution makers were aware of that, and they've chosen a mechanism to resolve that debate. That mechanism is that the constitutional court is the highest court in the land, and that, that court, whatever the majority of that court decides, is right. So you must have the discipline of stopping the debate once the majority of the constitutional court has decided, because our constitution says that the majority of the constitutional court is right. And that discipline applied to me as well when I was in the constitutional court, even as a judge. Because if I wrote a minority judgment today and there was a majority against me, and it has happened, Two weeks later, I write another judgment, which involves the same kind of thing. And I have to forget about my minority, minority <laughs> judgment. I write the new judgment as if my minority judgment had not even existed. So we have to develop the discipline of respecting the constitution and respecting constitutional structures. And of course, all organs of state are required by the Constitution to respect the courts and the judgments of the courts. I mean, one needs, one needs to bear that in mind. So for me, the answer is very easy. I always go back to our Constitution and say, what does the Constitution say to me? Now, I know that there are weaknesses in our Constitution that might change. But that is the document we have. Until it is changed, you've got to run your life by something. And it is a civil thing. And I would run my life and I'd run my contribution to the country by ensuring that we make a contribution to developing the vision 
and realizing the vision of our constitution. And I trust that in radio power, whatever it is, you do the same thing. Oh, so you used to listen to power. That was, that was a few years ago, um, uh, Zach. But uh, I think, you know, the, the sentiment that you raise around using the guardrails of the constitution uh, is a sobering one. And, you know, you were very much involved in terms of, you know, where our interim constitution landed. You were a member of the negotiation process. You were a member of the committee that was responsible for the finalization of the Bill of Rights in our interim constitution. You were a member of the independent panel of experts. You were advising the Constitutional Assembly as we prepared for the final constitution in 1996. So I think if anyone has an intimate understanding of its development and its content, it would be you. And of course, we just expect our judges to know the constitution backwards and forwards. We're almost running out of time, but there are a couple of things that I, that I wanted to cover. And I think one of them is just a reflection on scope for our laws, our system of laws to evolve in the context of the debate around the decolonialization of various things in our country, including the type of law that we practice. Just uh, wanted your thoughts on that and room for growth within South African legal jurisprudence. Okay. I think that, again, the constitution is the touchstone again. When we talk about decolonialization, does not mean that everything introduced by the colonies was bad. There are many things which were bad, and in the end, we have got to work that out in some ways. So we must use the constitution as the measure. I don't agree with those people who say that our constitution is against the values of the people of our country. I'm very sorry. Look at the Bill of Rights. Unless you tell me in so many words that the right to equality, the right to dignity, the right to human dignity, the right to freedom of expression, all those things are against African culture, then I'm afraid that I'll have to disagree with you. But African culture embraces all these values, and it's the values of the Constitution which we live by. So for me, again, there is nothing which is over-colonial about uh, our constitution. There is a colonial influence to a degree, but our constitution is based on the rights to dignity, equality, and freedom. And those are fundamental universal values. And I would hope that they are African values as well, that they are all our values, that we will all live by them, and that we will all make sure that we live by those values and we develop those values and don't use the excuse of colonialism whenever we find that sticking to the values of equality, dignity, and freedom and balancing those out properly and appropriately and regarding the human being as important becomes inconvenient. Because when that becomes inconvenient, then it becomes a problem. We all know that African society is not really too good about respecting women. It is basically very much a chauvinist society in many different ways. And so is Muslim society, I must say. And non-sexism is not an African idea. Non-sexism and non-racism is not an idea of Britain or America or anybody else for that matter. It comes from deep down there. And you cannot say 
that colonialism has anything to do with those intrinsic values. There is the problem of how you distribute resources and how you spend money and how much profit you make and whether you have a capitalist system or a socialist system or a communist system. But I must say that those are very deep political questions about which I have very little knowledge and about which I prefer not to comment. I prefer to stick to where I am and stick to ensuring that the constitutional values are stuck to. And I would like to say that fair labor practice is a very important part of that. A living wage is a very important part of that. Fairness in treating your workers is a very important part of that. And that is as far as I will go. And if you are fair and you balance out the rights of the employers and the employees properly, we'll be able to develop towards a much better society. I was going to ask about to probe your vision for the judicial system in South Africa and to kind of see whether there's room for, for any changes to be made. But I think I might go for a question that is more personal to you. You're at an age where you have the ability of and the luxury of hindsight. What satisfies you most as you take stock of your career, your life, your contribution within whatever obstacles there were in terms of access to resources? Um, you've owned your blindness. You've been very forthright about it. You you have tried to wear it uh, rather than allow to to sort of weigh you down. As you look back, you know, what, I, what are your... I'm very happy about the development of democratic structures within the student community at the university. I'm very happy about my contribution towards... Uh, I did a lot of work from the time I left school. I made a contribution to the work of the KwaZulu-Natal Blind and Deaf Society, as it then was. I was on the board of the School for the Blind. And so I did a lot of work putting back what I took out of those volunteers. I made a contribution towards child and family, family welfare societies, both in Durban and in Phoenix. I have made a contribution towards lawyers' organizations, about which I am very pleased. And there, I must thank my other colleagues who helped me. My contribution as a judiciary, too, was made possible as a result of the contribution of other colleagues who have humbled me on many an occasion and who have made me understand things and develop my personality and so on. So I think that I learned and grew more in the whole process of living than other people learned, learned or grew. And I think that our constitutional culture was a little more deeply embedded in our society by the time I retired than it was when I got there. Of course, we had the advantage that because the constitution was new, and the democracy was new. Much of our society like, was like a sponge absorbing all these values and so on. And therefore, there was rich and fertile ground to write the judgments we did, which were listened to and which were worked through and so on and so on. Now, of course, it gets more difficult because as uh, 
as the situation gets more crowded, as, shall I say, the sponge gets more waterlogged, you can't just put things in anymore. You've reached a stage where there are many things which you've got to squeeze out. And the problem is that to squeeze out only the bad and to leave the good intact and add more good to it is an extremely difficult process, which hopefully we'll be able to do. So it gets more and more difficult. It was it was easier when I was there. I think that if I were a young new constitutional court judge now, life would be much more difficult than it was then. Zach, thank you very much for giving us your time today. We appreciate it. You have earned the nap you hinted at having straight after this conversation uh, with me. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Very nice. Inam, very nice to talk to you. Hopefully we'll we'll meet personally sometime. (laughs) Forward to it. And to our listeners, you've been listening to Legal Luminaries, a Jackpod original podcast by Jita and Jacaranda FM. I'm Iman Rapetti. You can find more episodes at jacarandafm.com. You can just click on Jackpod. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Legal Luminaries, a Jackpod original podcast by Juta and Jacaranda FM. I'm Iman Rapetti. Find more episodes at jacarandafm.com. Just click on Jackpod.